This week on the Most Hated F Word podcast, we talk about from functioning financially to financially flourishing all before retirement. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. So what does it mean to flourish in life? And what really does financially flourishing mean? Well, this week we dive into the study of positive psychology and financial planning. What is positive psychology? Well, it's how we enhance our lives to experience life in such a way that has meaning, purpose, and a sense of accomplishment. Positive psychology is a field that dates back to at least the 1950s when Maslow's first edition of Motivation and Personality was published. And in his final chapter, he talked about this term positive psychology. And it was really Martin Seligman who brought positive psychology to more of a mainframe study as he was the one who started studying this idea of flourishing and his model PERMA that we get into during this episode. Thanks to wonderful people like Dr. Sarah Acevedo who are integrating positive psychology with financial planning, we can start to really see how we can use money as a tool and how it can help people financially function and then go beyond financially function to financially flourishing. And that's the study of positive psychology when we integrate it into financial planning is normal financial planning looks at how can we function financially, so pay our bills, pay our debt. And when we apply positive psychology, it then takes us to that financially flourishing stage. And financially flourishing doesn't just mean money and how much money of the bank. It's more so your subjective levels of well-being. And like I said earlier, what meaning, purpose, sense of accomplishment, social connections you have in life. Because when we shift our mindset to enjoy the present, to include things like I mentioned earlier, social connections, meaning purpose, we don't have to be single focused on retirement anymore because we are enjoying the journey. I hope you enjoy this week's episode from functioning financially to flourishing. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Sarah Acevedo. She is an experienced researcher, teacher, and practitioner in financial planning. She's currently spearheading research focused on the application of positive psychology to financial planning, financial behavior change, amongst many other interesting topics that we'll get into today. Her work has been published in the Journal of Positive Psychology, Psychology and Aging, Journal of Consumer Affairs, Financial Review, and many, many, many more journals. Her work has also been recognized with many awards throughout her career. And currently, Sarah is a member of the Financial Therapy Association and past president. She earned her PhD in personal finance from Kansas State University. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah, I am very excited to have you on today's podcast. 
I've recently, and when I say recent, very recent, as of January of this year, entered into a Master's of Positive Psychology. So I'm extremely interested to hear your perspective on the wonderful work you've been doing, doing a hybrid of financial planning and positive psychology. But before we get into your work, on this podcast, we talk a lot about our stories and our stories shape who we are. Our life is our story and our stories are life. So why don't you tell a bit of your story to our uh, listeners. I understand that you came from one of the most COVID perspective popular countries in the world right now, New Zealand, whose yes. cases remain quite low. Yeah. Why don't you just fill us in on your background? Maybe it starts in New Zealand and just how that part of your story has influenced who you are today. Sure. So I'll start briefly professionally. I'm currently at Texas Tech. I teach in our financial planning program. I teach a variety of things. I teach the technical stuff. So retirement planning is the core class I teach there. So everything from, you know, time value of money, capital needs analysis, 457s, 401ks, the whole gamut. And I love that side. The other side I love is communication counseling. And that's the other class I teach. And that class covers everything from grief stress and loss to conflict to psychology, positive psychology, personality, how to build strong, vibrant client relationships. And that class is also part of our online life-centered financial planning graduate certificate, which is uh, widely available to our current students and other professionals. So I love teaching both professionals and our students through that program. So I also really focused my research on this side of financial planning, which is the relational skill building side. And that's where positive psychology fits in with financial self-efficacy and, and conflict and those other things. So now, now we can kind of go back a little bit and, and see where, how I came to this point and this focus in my career. Before Texas Tech, I taught a couple years at Virginia Tech. And before Virginia Tech, I was practicing full time in the field in a, a firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working with high net worth clients and helping them with their financial lives. So in my practice experience, I quickly realized too that financial planning was so much more than just numbers, it's lives, it's behavior change, it's social relationships, it's it's multiple generations and working with perspectives across those with people, with humans. And humans are not robots. And there's a lot of things that go into processing money and what we do with it. So, and I relate that to my own life. One of the things I teach in my class, which is what you talk a lot about on this podcast, is your money story, your money history, and how that comes together to shape behavior along with a whole host of other factors. So let's go back to how I grew up. I was born and raised in New Zealand and lived there for 10 years um, from zero to 10 of my childhood. So not a long time, but a decent amount of time that shaped my childhood memories and perspectives, right? My parents are from the U.S. When I was around 10, uh, we moved back to uh, the U.S. And what I remember mostly of that time is what I call a financial flashpoint. It was when we moved, we basically could not take everything back with us. We did take the family dog, thank goodness. Otherwise, I think I would have been scarred for life. But the rest of our stuff, we basically sold it. We had a huge garage sale and sold most of our things. So most of the stuff from my childhood, not all of it, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that I remember was sold. 
I remember it being sold. And not that that was necessarily a good or bad event. It was just an event that stands out to me as one of the financial memories of my childhood. And when I think about money scripts, my top two money scripts are money vigilance, which is being really cautious and careful with money, and also money status. And I think my scripts have evolved over time. And early on, I believe that the money status script probably is somewhat related to this financial event of money status really means that you equate your self-worth with net worth and things. And so I, in the early years of my teen years, and I, I would say college years too, and early professional years, I had this desire to, A, make my own money, be independent, have control, and buy what I wanted to buy. I, I did not really grow up with a sense of needing to save or, um, you know, really developing a saving habit, which I think kind of blends in with this, you know, early desire to have stuff and things. And so in high school, I had jobs and I, you know, I used that money to buy what I wanted. And in college, I worked my way through college and, so, you know, bought the things I needed and the things I wanted. I didn't really save. I didn't know at the time what a Roth IRA was until I got into my financial planning undergraduate program. And then I started to learn what those things were. And I was attracted to that field or this field because of finances. I've always loved numbers. I love math. And I've loved money. I've loved working with it. And I love the idea of connecting that to a human being and helping people with their money. And it wasn't until later that I finally helped myself with money, you know, as I learned and grew. But um, when we think of what financial knowledge gives us, we realize that it helps us part of the way, but not all of the way. And we see that in the research literature that, well, financial knowledge doesn't really help everyone change behavior or implement what we would consider healthy behaviors. And I experienced that personally. So I went through a probably the, the highest level education you can get in finances, a CFP, Certified Financial Planner Level Education. And I graduated with, with uh, a degree in that field and passed that the CFP in my first year. So I had financial knowledge. Now, in my first year in practice, I had this brilliant idea of opening a Roth IRA and saving in it because I had to wait a whole year to join my company's 401k plan. So I tossed this idea by one of my colleagues and he said, oh, yes, that's brilliant. You should totally do that. And I'm like, okay, I'm using my knowledge. I'm going to do this. Well, I opened the Roth IRA. Knowledge helped me know what a Roth IRA was. I had the confidence the resilience, the financial self-efficacy to actually take steps to put that in place. But I did not save beyond $50 in that Roth IRA. I spent that whole first year buying a new car, buying the clothes I wanted, getting the haircuts I wanted, basically using my money on spending and accumulating things and and some experiences. And I, I never actually put my money a significant amount of it in a Roth IRA. A year later, I did join the 401k and I started making more, (laughs) I think, automatic savings, which really helps that behavioral aspect. But I just find it so interesting how you reflect on what knowledge brings, which is you have the opportunity to act and to execute behavior without confidence and 
uh, financial self-efficacy, which is uh, confidence, control, resilience. You need to have that to put your behavior into action. But then these other things, these other dimensions come in to affect behavior as well, such as your money story, your money scripts. And in my case, I think that was part of my transition into adulthood was to reconcile how I viewed things and money and finally come around to this idea that I don't need all this. I would rather save because that will matter to me more in the long term than this new outfit or whatever it might be. So it's money history, your values, your story. You extrapolate that to social relationships, your spouse, your friends. It's this whole other dimension that affects what you do with money above and beyond knowledge. And I think that's that's why we often have such a hard time around executing financial behaviors because of this other dimension. I jotted down like 17 different things that stood <laughs> out to me. And thanks for sharing that. And I think it's such a, a neat perspective that your, your lived experience, you have worked in the field, you're a CFP, and the research you've been doing. What you just talked about really reminds me of that idea of a financial iceberg. So like an iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is the 10% of the whole iceberg. And that's what we see above the waterline. Whereas below the waterline is the majority of the iceberg. And I would presume if we ever want to move an iceberg, we should push from the bottom, but I think that'd be pretty heavy. Nonetheless, that's where we would go <laughs> to move it. And it reminds me just of our, our behaviors is that our financial actions are that 10% that everyone sees. And knowledge, when we just acquire that knowledge... We have all that thoughts, feelings, beliefs, stories about money below that are impacting it. And that's why I'm so thankful that you're doing the work you're doing because I see that people want to change. They want to start putting more than $50 into their savings account like you talked about. And we then start to think, what's wrong with me? Because I can't. There's good work from people like yourselves who are bringing this other approach to money that's below the waterline. That brings me to a lot of the work that you're doing in positive psychology. So I would certainly say that's below the waterline. It's not saying, hey, do this action. It's really focusing on thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors. So can you talk about what is positive psychology for people who aren't familiar with the term? And also, if you could just note the difference between positive psychology and what I've heard people talk about is positive toxicity. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. I'm not as much. So that's like, I'm faking it. Like, po- like, oh, okay. uh, like I'm, I'm positive. I'm positive, even though I'm miserable and I'm ignoring the emotions below it. And I've just heard people saying that around positive psychology, like, oh, isn't that just bad for you? Isn't that ignoring the emotions, which Uh, we know it's not, but there's a misconception. So yeah, what is positive psychology? What drew you to this from your financial planning mind? So positive psychology is this area within psychology that focuses on this other dimension of mental health. So traditional psychology, not that it has ignored flourishing or meaning and purpose, but it has traditionally focused more on treatment, on filling a a deficit, on helping to help people move from a functioning state that is, is not, they're not fully functioning in life. Like they are having trouble maybe being a spouse or being a, a, a worker or a friend, and they need some mental health intervention to help function in life. So positive psychology has put a heavy emphasis on this other dimension to help people move from not just going through the motions, but enhancing your experience in life such that it has meaning, 
purpose, fulfillment, a sense of joy and accomplishment. And when I hear that and read that, I thought, oh my goodness, this directly relates to what we're trying to do with people around their money. Money is just a tool and we want people to function well with it, you know, have a healthy level of low interest debt, have a balance sheet with savings, have insurance so that they are functioning well and can be resilient to financial disruptions. So the question then is, well, is that enough? Is that all money is, is just a tool to help us get through life and not be subject to catastrophe? No, I don't believe it is. And I I think that money helps us live life to the maximum and live life optimally such that we don't just function, but we flourish in it. We look back on our life and say, that was meaningful. I had meaningful relationships. I did the things I wanted to do because they mattered to me. And money is the is the thing, the tool that helps us along that journey. So this is where it connects directly to financial planning because it affects how we think about the use of money, how we are intentful and mindful around where we put it to help us achieve those experiences that matter so much. Mm. So Positive psychology is different than what she mentioned as positive toxicity because it does not ignore negative emotions. It recognizes they exist. And nowhere have I read that, okay, ignore negative and just yeah. think positively and it'll all work out. And yeah. in your yeah. studies, I'm sure you've not, you've not read that either. That's no. not what it's about. It's about you recognize the negative emotions and you feel them when you need to feel them them. If you're sad, be sad. If you're angry, be angry. Mm -hmm. I love the emotional intelligence literature and the mood meter framework by Mark Brackett. I don't know if you've ever Mm -hmm. looked at that or seen it, but it, it helps us think about the dimensions of emotion. And it recognizes that these emotions are useful sometimes, depending on what it is we're trying to accomplish. And so What we have to recognize is based on my goal, based on where I want to be in this moment with this decision, what do I need to be feeling? And what we know from the research literature is that positive emotions have this capability to help us expand our perception of options. It helps us brainstorm. It helps us think creatively. It can help us cope and be be resilient. So positive emotions are are really uh, helpful They're a catalyst for taking certain actions that we might not otherwise take. So it's helpful to cultivate them and think about, would it be helpful to put in place an intervention to help me reframe my mindset? We also tend to focus a lot on the negative, and that can often overtake our lives. So there's an exercise in positive psychology called the three good things exercise. It sounds maybe um, cheesy. I, I don't know, but it actually, it really works. It's been shown in the research literature. You've probably learned about it already in your uh, positive psych master's degree, Sean. But it's this exercise that every day at the end of the day, you think about three good things that happened in your life that day. You think, what was it? How did I feel about it at the time? How do I feel about it now? And how did I contribute to this good event, which is important with developing optimism and resiliency and realizing your contribution to the good things that happen in life. So this is not to ignore the negative things that mm-hmm. happen that day. We, there's a lot to learn from bad events. And mm-hmm. I, I fully believe we have to embrace them and learn and, and those things. But 
to hang on to them and to hang on to the stress and some of the negative side of those things for a long period of time does more harm than good. So it's sort of a reframing mental technique that I've tried. Sometimes I end the day thinking, oh man, you know, I could have done that better or my dinner was really awful tonight. (laughs) But when I reframe it to think I made dinner or I did this other thing well, or, you know, I was present for my kids today. Sometimes that is a big accomplishment, right? Mm -hmm. So when I try this exercise and reframe my thinking, it, it really does help me with perspective sometimes. And I think that's the big thing that it brings. So some colleagues and I, we tried this uh, three good things exercise on an, on a sample of Amazon Enterc users. And we found that it did increase happiness levels, which is consistent with other studies. We also found, interestingly, that it increased financial satisfaction levels. So it's almost like this appreciation of some of the good things that are happening in life can also help boost our positive emotions, not just generally, but around money as well. I like how you frame that about, if we go back to psychology, how it focused kind of on the deficit and then functioning, I think is an important term that you're using is that financial planning is around functioning. (laughs) How do we pay off our debts? How do we function? And this idea of financial flourishing, I think is Amazing the research you're doing. And actually that's three good intervention. We've, we started doing that with my staff and, uh, it's interesting to see every morning we do it. Intuitively, it sounds like, yeah, the, these exercises on the surface. And this is what my staff is saying, like, yeah, okay, I can see it working. But now that we're doing it, they're like, wow, this really works. And I like how you adapted it for our money because, oh, we've got a lot of those emotions that are telling us negative things around our money. If we go back to our money stories, I'm not good enough or I'll never have this much money. And one, I, you know, we're always thinking I need more money. I need more money. But this helps us reframe that to maybe it's like, hey, I'm glad I could buy that coffee or whatever it was today. Mm-hmm. If I'm someone listening, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like one of those things that I hear all the time and I just got to do and I'm not going to do it. What would you say to that person based on the the sound research that you have seen on the benefits of doing these things? Because often I know we hear all these little things that we should do, but we're looking for that quick answer that I don't actually have to do the work. So I guess my question is around is how much of this is tied to doing the work and like how important is it for that we start to realize that we need to do this work if we want different results and that the end goal doesn't have to be oodles of money because the research is showing against that. It's about focusing on things that increase our financial satisfaction. Right. So, I mean, it's all about doing the work. You know, I don't think there's any area in life where we can expect a quick fix, something for nothing. I like to relate the financial domain to the health domain, right? Mm -hmm. This is especially interesting when you think about knowledge and other aspects that influence behavior, including emotions. So think about the goal or need to live a healthier lifestyle. What does that look like? It's what we eat. It's how often we're sitting or standing. It's exercise. And what plays a role in that? It's time. It's money, right? Access Mm -hmm. to being able to work out, whether at home or somewhere else, is buying food. It's, It's social relationships. You have a spouse that likes to eat a certain meal, but it it's something you feel like you need to cut. It's culture. Like there's so many things that affect how we live a healthy lifestyle. We all kind of know what that means, but actually doing it 
it doesn't just magically happen one day. Like, oh, when I have more time. Well, when do you get to that moment? Like, mm-hmm. okay, today I have more time. Now I'm going to go do that. It just doesn't work that way. And finances aren't any different. Like one mm-hmm. day when I make more money, mm-hmm. I will save. Okay. So mm-hmm. in college, I did not make much money. I made enough to get by. Then when I made, you know, a grown up salary, I had significantly more money. I could save. Did I save? No, I had never developed the saving habit. I had not done the work to mentally prepare myself for having more money such that I was ready to save when I had the resources to make more meaningful progress in that area. Mm -hmm. So we have to do the work. If we want to live a healthier life, if we want a healthier financial situation, it requires the work. And one aspect of that is building knowledge. Like I couldn't have put in place a Roth IRA if I didn't know what it was or how to open one. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is feeling confident in your knowledge and using it. And when you fail, accept it and be resilient. I think we have so much judgment in the financial industry that it it really harms people, I think. So even professionals make mistakes and fail sometimes it's it's like anything if you if you're on a diet and you eat too many cookies like okay so be it (laughs) what was the obstacle that prevented you from from, you know doing it better and then try again next time so be kind to yourself as well and and i think we need to stop judging people so Mm -hmm. much along the way and and along the journey Mm -hmm. so then to your point, Sean, there's so many tips, there's so many strategies, there's so much advice on what to do. And it is overwhelming. I agree as I look out there and see all the experts, including myself, say, oh, we'll do the three good things exercise. Mm-hmm. Do this, do that. The truth is, I think it really starts with awareness and just recognizing what you're doing. That whole year when I did not save and I spent, it was it was really subconscious. I didn't consciously say, I'm not going to save in this Roth IRA. I mm-hmm. felt like I'd done a good job. Like it's there, it's ready. And then, okay, I've got to, I got to do this. I need a new car. I need this. And so next thing I knew the whole year had gone by and I realized I didn't save, but oh, well now I'll start the 401k and I'll do a little there. Mm-hmm. So it was just a missed opportunity. It's really what it was. So sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but it's, it's awareness and paying attention to what is it I'm doing and why? And is this important to me or not? So think about where your money is going. Actually look at it. It really does start there and say, okay, whoa, I'm putting all this money into whatever it might be. Maybe it's travel or, or shoes or gifting or really whatever it is. Look at that spending map. I hate to say budget. I think budget is the next, you know, most hated word. (laughs) And it implies restriction, kind of like a diet, right? Look at your spending map and say, okay, where is it going? And is that what I want? And is that bringing me the flourishing life that I am hoping for? Yeah, wow. Because, you know, today's a mini version of our future lives. And if we don't do what you just did there is ask, am I spending on it bringing me to a flourishing life? Then we might... We might not get there. And I want to pull out something you said about stop judging ourselves. That spoke to me because I'm bringing it back to something you said earlier about, about um, positive psychology is not avoiding emotions. It's recognizing them. And for the longest time, 
I, I've talked about this before, but you're making me think of it again. I thought I was emotionally literate or I had emotional intelligence because I read the book, Emotional Intelligence. And when someone actually asked me, what emotions are you feeling? I was like, well, I'm feeling kind of like, and they're like, no, you're explaining your situation. I'm like, oh, no, okay. And <laughs> I couldn't do it. And I really think that that judgment even if we're judging other people's comes from maybe there's some uncertainty inside of us. So it comes out as a judgment. And I wanted to really bring that back. What you said is like having that uh, emotional literacy to understand, Hey, I'm feeling this. Okay. recognize it. Now I can move on and really focus on this flourishing aspect. It opens the doorway. And this is kind of setting up my question about flourishing in general. So like, so let's say I, I am getting better. We never ever are perfect at understanding our emotions, but we're getting better. We recognize it. We can open up the door to now focus on flourishing things. Traditionally, financial planning is very function oriented, like we talked about. And I'm going to specifically look at the goal. The goal is to retire at 60, 65. That's been the pursuit for many, many years. So everything's around like when I retire, when retirement planning, it's all about this time when you retire. When we talk about flourishing, can we experience, experience flourishing, financial flourishing, before we're 65, <laughs> if the goal is financial flourishing, what do we focus on? Because I've also seen research that if I focus on happiness, I actually might become unhappy if I'm just focusing on the end goal of happy. So can you talk to the audience right now about how do we replace this goal? Because I think we should look at replacing the goal of re retiring at 65 with this idea of financially flourishing. How would someone do that? And can we experience it before we're 60 or 65? Help us, please let us know. <laughs> Well, I will do my best. That's a really <laughs> tough question. But I think it's also a simple one. Like, yes, you can have a flourishing life and financially flourish before retirement. And I really encourage you to try to do that because if you just wait until this magic stage of life called retirement, A, you're going to miss out on a huge chunk of your life that you're living, which is today. And when you get to retirement, you're going to realize this is just another phase of life that is continuing. And there's nothing magic about that event that all of a sudden you will have a flourishing life, right? Mm -hmm. It's something like saving. Saving is a habit. It's a mentality. The way we approach life today is probably going to be similar to how we approach it in retirement, just having more time and more money is not going to magically give you this exciting, happy life. So one of the things when I talk about positive psychology, I like to come back to what they teach in this field, which is well-being theory. You've probably heard of it. It's the acronym is PERMA, which is not a hairdo from the 80s. It's an acronym <laughs> that stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And I really like this framework because it gives us a way to think about, well, what does it mean to flourish and have this life that feels full. So the PERMA well-being theory describes that we need to experience these five elements to some degree to feel like we have this full flourishing life. Positive emotions, it matters the extent to which we feel joy, happy, peace, it's not just not just happiness. It can be forward-looking, positive emotions, reflective, like satisfaction, 
optimism. And that's where these three good things exercise uh, mm. really helps is, okay, I'm focusing a lot on the negative here and I'm feeling a lot of stress. Stress is not always bad, by the way. It tells us what to pay attention to and where we need to take some action. So stress can be activating. It's not necessarily a bad thing, which is a whole other topic. But feeling positive emotions and having those momentary senses of joy and meaning are, are really important. I think we find that when we spend money, we often feel, try to fill that bucket and we get on this hedonic treadmill mm-hmm. up buying stuff because we get an emotional boost and then we want more and more. I think if we really examine well-being, we'd find that a lot of us put a lot of money into this positive emotion category, but we are lacking a lot in engagement and meaning and accomplishment and maybe even relationships. So I really think it's helpful to look at where you're spending your money in light of the well-being elements. Am I mm-hmm. putting any time, not just money, but time and money into other areas that, that create a broader sense of well-being? Engagement is the next area after a positive emotion. So engagement is the sense of full psychological immersion into a task or activity that's challenging, but not so challenging. You get really frustrated, but it's challenging enough. You get lost in it. You lose track of time, track of self. So think about, is there something that you do to where you just get totally absorbed into it? And I can think of a handful of things. I've started some new hobbies too amidst the pandemic, which are really fun. And and I do them and all of a sudden it's five o'clock and the kids are like, mom, we're hungry. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I got to feed you, <laughs> you know? We can't leave us hanging. What kind of activities? <laughs> so let's see. The, the two activities I really love, I love to cook, but I have a love-hate relationship with cooking because I love to cook. I hate the dishes type of a uh, thing. Yeah. Um, so that's one I can really get like sucked into the kitchen for hours on end doing a variety of fun things. The other one is my daughter and my son actually like to sew. And this started with my daughter wanting to like redesign some clothes and make toys and things like that. And um, we channeled this into sewing and she loves to just chop up fabric and scraps and clothes that don't fit anymore and redesign and recreate some things. So Mm -hmm. I've kind of through that means gotten into sewing as well. And hobbies require money. So this is where there's a direct connection between money and these activities that bring well-being. I can tell you, I've um, put money into sewing machine, a serger, a cover stitch machine. You know, you look at those seams on your clothes that have a nice seam on top and a nice cover on the bottom. A serger doesn't do that. A sewing machine doesn't do that. You need a cover stitch machine. So you can see real quickly how a hobby now has some pretty big financial implications. But also when you think about a spending map or spending plan, I would look at this and say, okay, this is maybe more money than I ever intended to spend on this new hobby. But when I experience the kids engaging in it, the enjoyment I get out of it, Mm -hmm. it makes complete sense for us to be putting some decent money into this hobby because look at the social connection and relationship building opportunity it presents. It gives me something to do (laughs) and something other than work. So it helps me, you know, step away and do something else that is absorbing. So anyway, that's an example of engagement. I wish I got that level of engagement out of exercise, but you know, (laughs) that hasn't (laughs) happened yet. 
relationships, that's the third area that's really important. I just mentioned that um, that one's expenditure on a hobby also helps support relationship building and skill building with the kids and gives me something to do. So it kind of hits two buckets at the same time. But relationships is this idea of having supportive, open, connected relationships with others. And I think during the pandemic, we've felt that more than ever before with the inability to see some people for a long time and thinking of creative ways to build relationships when you can't have as much FaceTime or the same FaceTime as you had before. Meaning is the sense of contributing to a greater purpose. You can achieve meaning through so many different things. It could be, you know, charitable giving is probably the most obvious one. It could be giving time. It could be just helping someone with something. I mean, there's a lot of different things that bring meaning and purpose, but that's important. Can I say something on meaning? Oh, yes, go ahead. I can't remember what book. I think it was the Power of Meaning book. And I really like this one perspective where she talked about this, about meaning and how sometimes we feel like meaning we have to be like Steve Jobs or working on a board of directors for a nonprofit. But she interviewed some uh, individuals who cleaned a hospital. And this one gal had said like, you know what, I allow, I think it was a hospital, but essentially it's like, I allow people to be healthy because I clean the room. I create space for them to be healthy and like she had so much meaning in her work and I really like that because like it doesn't mean we have to go out and change everything we can find meaning in our everyday lives oh that is so good I really like that because you're absolutely right it doesn't always mean a big change it can be a mental shift in perspective which the three good things exercise can help yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like when I, when I teach, I'm not just teaching and giving knowledge. I'm shaping young minds, mm. right? And, mm-hmm. and my work with students affects their future clients. So to your point, finding meaning can be within what you're currently doing and being more mindful and having a, a unique perspective on it. Mm-hmm. So, and then the last dimension is accomplishment, which is a sense of success, winning even, and accomplishment and and finishing something. And that can come from hobbies. It can come from finishing any task. It can come from something as big as pursuing a higher degree, uh, pursuing more education, learning a new language, downloading Duolingo or something, Mm -hmm. right? And, And learning something new. Whatever it is, it's the sense of you are accomplishing something, you're succeeding, you're making progress type of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that's well-being theory. And, okay, this is a really long answer to your question um, about can we have this now or does this, do we have to wait for retirement? You can have this now if you pause and think about are these areas, am I experiencing them today? Am I not? Is there a big gap? And then think about your money and where your money is going. And I encourage people to not only think of money, but also time, because Mm -hmm. we may not have to put money towards relationships, for example. Maybe it's time and effort in another way. So if you think about money and time as your resources that you're putting into this idea of a flourishing life, think about where am I putting my money and time in ways that support this experience today. Mm. 
we always tie this to work, right? So it could mean reframing how you're approaching work and where you see the meaning and purpose. It could even mean a job change and doing something entirely different. And that often gets to be tricky because there's usually a financial trade-off or there's big financial implications of that. But it's important to think about if I continue in this job, I may make a certain amount of money, but I can't see myself experiencing any of, you know, of of these other things because I'm working all the time and I really don't have meaning in it or or something like that. And so you have to think about, okay, am I better off just continuing in this? I'm 65 and then retire. But then when I retire, I've not lived a life that has Mm. pursued these other elements. So it's also unrealistic to expect that if I've lived a life without pursuing these other dimensions and then I retire, they don't just magically appear, right? They don't just materialize. It's something that you discover and you build over time. Like what brings me engagement in the first place? Mm -hmm. What is meaningful to me? I really appreciate you bringing up this PERMA model. And I even think of people who I know who are retired and they don't have any of, well, not any, but they're lacking these because to your point, they didn't, they didn't cultivate it and they're not going to just magically get it once they retire. And your answer really reminds me of an episode. I think it was number six on my podcast here. Um, it was called Timer Money. And it was with this guy named Root Hub. He was a musician that was aspiring in LA, did well, ended up quitting the whole pursuit of that end goal to be famous and lives on an island in Hawaii for 23 years. And he's like, I am the happiest guy in the world. He's like, sure, I'd like more money. But I look at this PERMA model. He's like the super positive person, super positive. That's probably not a real sentence. But anyways, he's like incredibly positive. He lives with 11 people on like a communal farm. So he's got engagement or relationships. His meaning is he creates these mini anthems. Like he could literally listen on my episode. He sang a song at the end of our episode about our episode. It was incredible. So he's got this huge gift to create people with music. And, uh, you know, his accomplishments are what he's doing. And, it's just so interesting that, like, like he said, money would make my life easier, but I wouldn't trade any of this right now. And it's just, to your point, he's got all of those areas. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea. I, I really do. This really speaks to my soul is this PERMA model, this well-being theory integrated with financial planning. Your work is a, like super interesting for me. What are some other suggestions that people are listening? Like, oh, I like this. I want to focus on flourishing and living this perma, like implementing perma, the spending plan or spending map, you said. So these are all good information that we're giving. What are some other interventions or exercises beyond the three good things, which again, I personally have been using it. It's wonderful because actually just about accomplishments. I want to tell you a quick story is I hate yard work. I can't stand it. I'm like, I could be doing so many more things. And one day I was like, Hey, I shoveled the sidewalk today. I'm in Canada, so it's lost. No, but I shoveled the sidewalk today and it, that was good. <laughs> People could walk on it and, and it was a reframe. Maybe I tricked myself, but it felt good. But do you have some other positive psychology or other exercises that can help us start to implement these things in our daily lives beyond the three good things? Sure. So when you're thinking of changing your sort of map of spending to align with this idea of broader well-being, that also means behavior change. Mm. 
It means getting on the same page with your spouse. So Ah. there's, I know there's, there's, I think two other interventions per se that I would suggest. One is from positive psychology and it's in my journal financial planning paper with Martin C. And it's around developing optimism because when you change behavior, it's tough and you're going to fail sometimes and that's okay. Like this is where the don't judge yourself, learn from where Mm. you trip up and that helps to identify obstacles. But there is a intervention around developing optimism and it kind of goes along the same lines of this reflective, like what went well and why did it go well and how did I contribute Mm. to it? Mm. If you can tie your personal attributes and your contributions to good things that happen. And you can explain why, like I did not succumb to this impulse purchase today because I recognized it. I felt in control. I stepped back and I paused and I realized, you know, yeah, that would be cool to have. But when I think about having it, it doesn't change my life. I would probably feel a little remorse about it. So I decided, you know, I'm not going to buy that today. That's a win. And and if you can develop a personal attribution to that, it helps you feel more in control and develop a sense of optimism around that. Similarly, negative events, you sort of want to do the reverse a little bit and recognize I mean, have a healthy perspective, recognize, okay, I did contribute to this, but there were other circumstances around Mm. it. And I failed not because I'm a bad person, but because whatever it is, your tribute to it. So this is where you can be kind to yourself, not judge. This is not saying you don't own the, Mm -hmm. the error or whatever. You have ownership of it, but you don't beat yourself up for it. You Mm -hmm. recognize the things around you that contributed to the event and you recognize those as obstacles and you figure out a way to overcome them or account for them next time. And then you move on. So this, there's a whole cognitive behavioral strategy around developing optimism that Martin Seligman writes about in a book called, I think it's called developing optimism. That's really good. So that's one. The second one is working with a spouse or a partner around behavior change when you don't agree. So that, that creates grounds for conflict. So I've written a couple papers on conflict resolution around money arguments in the journal financial therapy and Emily and I, my co-author, wrote one in the journal Financial Planning. And we talk about a framework that first positions conflict as normal and healthy. So if you're starting to fight with a partner or spouse about money, this is actually a good thing. It's not bad. It means that you have an area that you need to increase your communication around and build understanding. It's challenging when we fight because we want to often defend and protect. And it's so hard to listen in those moments, but that's exactly what you have to do is have empathy, listen, don't judge, and really try to see their side. And they need to really try to see your side. You're trying to identify the motivations and values that underlie whatever position you're taking and whatever position it is that they're taking. And when you can do that, you can really make progress on resolving conflict at that interest level and 
I guess there's so much more to that. We mm. can spend a whole nother podcast talking about that, but just expect that there is going to be conflict and friction around money in your social network, whether it's a spouse, partner, kids, friends, right? If you're wanting to maybe eat out less, you might have to say no to some invitations from friends. And that might be hard to do. There's some mm. conflict there. There's also personality factors that make, you know, saying no easier or harder than, than otherwise. So anyway, conflict, I would say that's my other area I would suggest paying attention to and reading about such that when you try to change behavior, you are effective at dealing with that when it inevitably arises. Personal experience on those ones is like, yeah. Conflict is so important. And like you said, it, it comes up all the time, especially in our money lives. And to our opening point, we all have different money stories. So anyone who co-manages money with another person, whether it's a business, a spouse, there's going to be conflict because we have different stories. But that empathy, exactly. what a what a big uh, gift to our uh, conversations and conflict we can have is empathy. I can confidently say when I look at this PERMA model, positive emotions, engagement, relationship, meaning, and accomplishment, I feel like I can't speak for yourself, but this was time well spent for me. I felt this is a good conversation for me. Positive emotions. We were engaging, Zoom or not. I guess we're developing a relationship from this girl that I met on a piece of paper. Now I'm actually talking to her. You're putting a lot of meaning into the world and uh, a lot of accomplishment you're doing. So we got the PERMA model a little bit touched on this podcast. (laughs) So thank you. Yes, we do. Same for my end as well. (laughs) So my last question is, let's say you are, and you've probably heard a similar rendition of this, but you fast forward, you're 90, 95, whatever life expectancy is at that point. And you're sitting on the front porch, looking back at your life and your story that you've created. And if you were tasked, tasked to write a letter to your children or your children's children about what you've learned on creating a healthy relationship with money, what would you say in that letter? Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) We try to be thoughtful on the spot. Let's see. I mean, in that letter, I would impart the themes of be patient, be kind. It's okay if you mess up, learn from it and identify who you are and what you want and align your money with that. And you'll be happy and you'll have a good life. So, and be, be kind to others. You will argue, mm-hmm. fight, have conflict, look at it as healthy and a moment to generate clarity and build relationships and don't let money get in the way of that. So awesome. my, that's a very short letter, but <laughs> that's, those are, I think, some of the main pieces that I would put in there. Yeah. Sometimes or a lot of times less is more. So thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. I know you have a busy schedule with all the wonderful work you're doing. I will link to a bunch of the things we talked about, some of the interventions. And is there any specific place you would point people towards for your information piqued their interest? It's a good question. So the Journal of Financial Planning paper, is, I don't think it's open access, so that might be tough. I don't know if I have it here, but Martin Seligman has a book on flourishing. I think in 2012, you're probably probably aware of it. He has that book plus Developing Optimism. Now, if they want to dig into conflict, the Journal of Financial Therapy is open access. And I have a Mm. conflict resolution framework paper in the Journal of Financial Therapy. So people can very easily access that and learn about it. 
Okay, I'll dig that up and put it in the show notes. Let me know if you have problems finding it. Okay, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you spending your time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for spending your time with me. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you're enjoying the content, if you're enjoying the guest, please, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It means a lot to me. And until next time, have a great day.